Welcome to the Yimbyist Podcast. The Yimbyist Podcast is brought to you by Yimby Eugene Springfield. Yimbyist is a nonprofit devoted to making housing more affordable for all residents of our cities. Yimby stands for Yes and My Backyard because we stand for the idea of welcoming diversity into our neighborhoods across all spectrums, including race, socioeconomic status, and housing types. We'll be discussing housing politics and policy on this podcast from a wide array of perspectives. So if you know someone who might want to make their voice heard, please reach out to us, yimbyes at gmail.com or visit our webpage, yimbyes.org. My name is Daniel Ivey. I'm the Yimby Eugene Springfield Board President. I'm joined today by Aaron Fifield, a Community Development Analyst with the City of Springfield, and Terry McDonald, Executive Director, St. Vincent de Paul. So thank you so much for joining me today, both of you. Happy to be here. Great. Excellent. Um, so I want to kind of start just going into a little bit of background for both of you. Um, we'll start with Aaron. So what can you tell us about the role of the community development analyst? Oh, sure. Uh, so the position's created out of a resource the city receives of federal funds from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. So the city receives federal CDBG funds, community development block grant funds. Um, And through that, the goal is to address issues of affordable housing, community development needs in the community. And so the role of the analyst is really to administer those funds, working with council and working with the public to identify what are the needs in our community to address um, for folks who are low income or areas of, you know, identified for infrastructure needs, economic development needs, sort of housing affordability, and then um, receive direction from council to then go ahead and implement that. So it starts there and then sort of expands to beyond just the federal funds. What are other ways we can help support affordable housing in our community? Okay, so it's not just limited to CDBG. It's No, it's like any, I mean, there is more than just, I mean, CDBG funds will only get you so far. So what else does the city have an ability to do seen through the affordable housing strategy or um, other efforts that the state allows or that the city wants to pursue? And then I sort of figure out through council's direction, like how to help make it happen, work with our partners um, and see what, what could actually help make a project. So do you have a background in housing or community development? I'm just kind of curious what sort of led you to the... I think the interest has always been Uh there. Um, Sort of joined the Peace Corps after college Mm -hmm. and sort of saw the need for um, sort of what can happen when folks sort of commit to sort of helping out with the community. Um, Had a master's degree in public administration and started looking at um, sort of ways that government can help address needs in the community. Um, and previously came from an auditing background, sort of looking at how programs can be run more efficiently and effectively and sort of wanted to come back to sort of a smaller scale community. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks. Uh, And then Terry, uh, what can you tell us about, you know, your background? I don't, you know, you have to go through everything, but I'm just kind of curious kind of how you came up and came to be in the position that you're at with St. Vincent de Paul. Well, in 1971, I was deciding what I was going to do with my life, and uh, there was not a big call for Byzantine historians, which is what I wanted to uh-huh. be. I really liked the Exarchate of Ravenna and the financial reforms of Alexis Comnenus, uh, but there was not a lot of call for that professionally. <laughs> uh, and uh, fortunately, the then director of CMSC Paul needed an assistant, and so I volunteered to see uh, if I could do that for a while, and I uh-huh. became enamored with the idea of nonprofit. Uh, uh, business and philanthropy, 
uh, and I've been there ever since. And wow. I took over as director in 1984 with the death of the first uh, director of St. Louis City Paul. He mm-hmm. ran the company from 1953 until 1984 when he died, uh, and he was my father. Oh, okay. Uh, so I'm a, I am a product of a, a nonprofit universe. Okay, wow, that's that's quite the story. Um, so, what uh, and we you know we've had uh, somebody from Saint Vincent de Paul in a previous podcast. We talked a little bit about um, the uh, car camping program and, and the work that she did on that. That was Eileen Shanti. Um, you know, one of the things that came up on that um, episode and uh, and one of the things that I kind of want to you know, make sure people in, in the world know. I think a lot of people, when they hear St. Vincent de Paul, they think of your donation centers. Um, but obviously, St. Vincent de Paul has a lot more that they sort of offer to the community. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what some of the different programs are? Sure. Uh, so St. Vincent de Paul uh, provides uh, a number of services for both homeless uh, and then transitional housing and permanent affordable housing. Uh, so we have about 1,400, I guess about 1,500 units of affordable housing. Uh, some of it transitional housing, some of it SRO type of housing, single room occupancy type of housing. Uh, we're working on developing another project out in Eugene, and we just finished up a project in Springfield, a Section 42 tax credit deal called the Myrtlewood on Main Street. Uh, so there's that part. Uh, we also provide a large number of homeless services, as you alluded. So we uh, do the Singles Access Center out at uh, the Lind Home Center on Highway 99 North. Uh, that's showers, laundry and food service for mm-hmm. homeless singles. Then uh, we have First Place Family Center by South Eugene High School on 19th uh, and Amazon Parkway, and it serves the needs of uh, homeless families. Uh, then we have the Annex, which uh, took over the role of the Interfaith Emergency Shelter System, which is night shelter for homeless families during mm-hmm. the winter months. It's actually now 12, 12 months out of the year, and it deals with 20 families at a time, trying to transition those families from homelessness into housing. Uh, we also do the um, Dust to Dawn program, uh, which is uh, tent camping for 200 individuals per night uh, out on Highway 99 North. As you alluded to, the overnight uh, camping program or the car camping program, about mm-hmm. 80 slots for that. Uh, we also have the SSVF program, and that's supported services for veterans' families. Uh, and uh, that's rehousing homeless veterans. Uh, and uh, that program generally gets in about just short of one person, uh, one homeless veteran per day, uh, kind of every, all, all year round. Uh, Vet Lift, uh, residential program for uh, formerly homeless veterans. The Lift program for dual diagnosed uh, homeless individuals. Uh, and a partner pear tree. Yeah, so there's yeah. a bunch of programs. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, certainly uh, very expansive and sort of broad sweeping, you know, array of services that we're providing for the community. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of you know, interfacing with the community and, uh, you know, your work with the city and, and other, um, uh, you know, you know, nonprofits or other sort of organizations, it, it certainly seems like uh, you, you have a very positive impact and, and like, you're really well, I hope so. Uh, Paul, so. I hope you yeah. do. And, uh, and uh, actually, we'll be activating the Egan Warming Centers this Wednesday. Right. Yes, I did see that. Yeah, awesome. Um, so, so to dive into our, uh, you know, conversation topic for the day, um, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, let's get kind of an overview of, you know, what federal funds are, uh, that, that, um, that exist to assist with, uh, you know, building housing and, uh, by association sort of attempting to make housing more affordable for everyone. 
Sure. Um, so there are two primary sources that the city of Springfield um, has access to, and these are funds that we are referred to as an entitlement city. We don't need to compete for them. We receive these funds on an annual basis following, you know, meeting certain federal requirements. But um, those two funds are CDBG, as I mentioned, and those are, a, you know, a broad focus of community development and affordable housing goals. Um, and so it sort of up to the community in terms of how they want to prioritize the use of those funds. Um, but also the city with, uh, in conjunction with the city of Eugene, Springfield receives home funds, which are targeted specifically for increasing the supply of affordable housing. And that can be used to help develop new affordable housing, either from construction or to help acquire an existing apartment, apartment complex and then um, convert it to income qualified housing. And so the city puts out um, an RFP each year, sort of different processes right now with how the two funds are operating. Um, but essentially we are looking to the community and developers to say, what projects are you interested in and how can we help? We have these sources available to us that can be used in these ways and try and sort of figure out the best way to use those funds. I would say a number of years ago, um, we had started having these conversations with developers. Like, what are, what do you need from us? What are mm -hmm. other than the funds? Mm -hmm. And we sort of heard a few things. One is land. First and foremost, none of these projects are going to happen if we can't find land. And given some of the federal requirements around the environmental review process and how long that takes, um, sometimes developers and even the city can sort of lose out in, in acquiring land in this mm -hmm. kind of market when it's going to take six months before we can actually purchase it. So that's still a struggle, but it's something council has wanted to prioritize. Like if we can ease the burden on our partners, maybe we can use our federal funds to help buy land that they can then sort of use to build. Mm -hmm. affordable housing for the city. So that is one of the focuses. And then I'll just add in these conversations, um, there was a, there is a um, property tax exemption that the state made available to cities that mm -hmm. the city of Springfield had adopted back in the 90s and hadn't sort of reinstated. But this uh, is called the low low income rental housing property tax exemption, which would allow new development of affordable housing to be off the property rolls for 20 years. And so to help with those operating costs. And so the city council went ahead and said, yes, um, let's go ahead and support this. And let's ask our fellow taxing partners to support this as well um, to be able to help a partner. So that's not a federal program, but mm -hmm. sort of helping with the financing of these projects. That was another role the city could play. Got it. And it, I mean, are any of these funds kind of a use it or lose it kind of thing? Is, it, are there, is there any sort of time frame that's associated with them or is it? Yeah, there are. Um, it's I mean, the federal government has its own complicated formula. So it's not that there's a timeline attached to a dollar, but sort of how the program is run overall. Mm -hmm. And is the city using those funds in a timely way? Do we need the funds that we're being given? And so. Part of that is with CDBG funds, we have other programs like the city runs an emergency home repair program mm -hmm. for low-income homeowners to help with roof repair or heating furnace sort of that may break down in the winter. We could help replace that or repair it. Um, and so how we, these other programs we run, down payment assistance programs, um, sort of all contribute to how are we using in general the funds we're given. And so as long as we're using those efficiently, then we can sort of still try and work on 
sort of moving the other funds for mm-hmm. a project in the future. But it is something we are aware of and sort of need to use those funds toward projects that are able to move forward. Yeah. yeah. And then as far as like how the funds are allocated, is it just based on population? Is it based on need? I mean, how, I mean, I know you said the federal formulas are very complicated, oh, but sure. I, don't, I don't necessarily want you to... <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, there, I would say at, at minimum, so at minimum, I think the city needs... Any city needs to have a population size of at least 50,000. So any city in the state that is less than that has the ability to compete for those funds from the state of Oregon, whereas the cities that are over a population of, I think, 50,000 are, quote unquote, entitled to receive uh, CDBG funds. Mm -hmm. And so then those funds are, yeah, the formula based on population, based on demographic, based on... um, sort of income, I'm not entirely sure the ratio, but we, it also depends on the congressional allocation each year. And so we don't really know anywhere between April and August, what that allocation is going to be for a July one start date. Mm -hmm. Um, But we've been receiving, I would say around half a million each year in CDBG funds. Um, And And that's just Springfield. And that's just Springfield, Right. right. And then another don't know our proportion, but two or three hundred thousand for home funds, um, which, as Terry can say, doesn't get you much um, toward developing new housing. Um, so we do have to be creative. And how can we work with yeah. Eugene? How can we work with our partners to say, can we pool funds in a few years to make a project? Yeah, and that's I think that's a really good point, and it's an interesting segue. I mean, I've heard um, you know in my conversations with people in the in the nonprofit housing development type world, sort of different things about the use of these federal funds and, um, and and different types of you know funding methodologies and trying to figure out like okay how much how much do we want to raise privately versus how much do we want to use from the government and and there are um, correct me if I'm wrong but some pros and some cons as well with using federal funds are there does, are there sometimes like strings attached that come with those federal funds that that kind of prevent you from developing maybe in the way that you might want or well they're more like spider webs uh-huh uh, they're kind of sticky uh, so, you know, the public policy has to be served, and that means that you have to be very accountable for these funds. And so mm-hmm. there's long-term monitoring requirements on all federal funds. Uh, you also have uh, some inefficiencies in systems because you have to do this monitoring over a long time and follow the formulas that uh, the feds lay out. Uh, also, that we do recognize that often these program goals of, these, of the federal programs somewhat comp- conflict with each other. So they were not written at all at the same time. So the CDBG fund uh, was actually developed under the Nixon administration uh, a long time ago, whereas home funds were a product of the 90s. Uh, So they have different goals when they're spaced out by 30 years. Uh, Likewise, uh, in the 80s, the third leg of the stool for federal funding uh, is the low-income housing tax credits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was created under the, the uh, Reagan administration uh, and changed the way that we delivered affordable housing throughout the United States, not just in Oregon. Okay, gotcha. Um, so yeah, we can kind of dig into some uh, you know specifics. I want to talk about um, you know some some specific projects that have you know benefited from federal funds. Um, you know we mentioned the Myrtlewood. Uh, that's thirty two unit or thirty five units, um, and that was the you know, so there were some federal funds that were used, and uh, also uh, there were, there was a tax exemption on that as well, right? Yes, right. that's correct. And tax credits. Tax credits. Um, it had multiple funding sources. Uh, that project was a total of a um, 
$7.5 million project, more or less. Uh, $600,000 of home funds were dedicated to that project. Uh, the Springfield Economic Development Agency set aside $89,000 of uh, funds that were in that account uh, to help pay for SDCs, system development tax uh, charges. charges right. uh, and then the LIHTC program, the Low Income Housing Tax Credits, brought in six point, about $6.4 million. And some state funds came in, about $400,000 from the GHAP program, which is the General Housing Assistance Program, I think is the acronym, uh, and then a little bit of money from the from us and from uh, from the owners of the property that we inherited this property from. Got that. Yeah. And how? Um, I mean, in terms of start to finish, what um, you know? It, do you feel like that project went? You know, I mean, obviously the end result is a is a you know standing structure that provides housing. Did that go sort of? You know, you described this sort of spider web or lattice work of red tape and things you have to kind of go through. Was that, um, you know, were the things that we learned from that? Did it go well overall? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, St. Vincent Paul is a pretty seasoned developer of affordable housing. Mm -hmm. uh, we've developed over the last 30 years about 30 of these type mm -hmm. of projects. Uh, one of those is on the corner of 5th and Main Street, downtown Springfield. Mm -hmm. That's the uh, Royal Building, uh, and that's been around for a number of years. Uh, and uh, another one is out on 69th and Main. Uh, which is uh, the Ash Meadows Affordable Housing Project. So St. Vincent Paul has developed a number of these projects in Springfield over time. Uh, so we're pretty familiar with how to land these projects. Uh, the nice part about it was is that the city of Springfield was very motivated to help on this project. Uh, they, they recognized the need. I'm just putting words in your mouth there. No, 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 these are, <laughs> these are uh, accurate. That, uh, that the city of Springfield is very interested in development of more affordable housing. And there was a number of issues with the site that the Myrtlewood went on to, including right-of-ways, right. uh, that the city had to be kind of creative on. And so we appreciate that partnership. Do we feel like there's, as, as time goes on, and as, you know, I mean, we, we see headlines that we're, you know, our, our housing prices are getting a lot of control in this area. Um, uh, you know, our unhoused population is increasing. Is there, is there sort of more of a sense of urgency in recent years to get more housing built as kind of a result of those things? I think we're feeling the urgency. I mean, I would say for the Myrtlewood, so that was a $600,000 um, home award that the city of Springfield was, or in, in conjunction with Eugene, was able to award, which is less than 10% mm -hmm. of the cost of the project. It, it was two years worth of our home allocation, and it took how many years to go from conception to... Three years. Three years. And so it's 35 units, that's great, but it's... It's not, we're not able to build at the rate that we need housing mm -hmm. and we don't have the funds to do it either. And so it's, while we can continue to do this, I'm not sure where the two lines end up meeting. Mm -hmm. Well, the two, two lines, not because of anything that the city of uh, Springfield right. or Lane County is doing, are, diver are basically growing apart. Uh, and the reason for that is the rapid run up in the cost of housing in mm -hmm. this area. That's not the affordable housing, that's just housing in general, and they have very low vacancy rate. So, yeah. you know, the city of Springfield, at least I saw just the other day, uh, has passed 70,000 people, um, and the city of Eugene is over, what, 170 or something like that? Um, so, I mean, these towns are growing, and they're growing pretty rapidly, and the state of Oregon has added, what, 400,000 people in the last 10 years, uh, and that rate growth continues to grow, and it's mostly in the valley. Uh, so, 
the affordability of housing is really becoming a difficult item for people on fixed income. And that's where we're seeing a lot of the issues around homelessness coming in, into the community. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. not, it's not importing people. It's basically shaking out people, people that are on fixed yeah. income. Got it. Um, so uh, the, uh, they're sort of looking on the horizon to sort of future projects and things um, that, that we have coming up. Like uh, uh, There's a... Um, a manufactured park uh, with a, a three million dollar um, bill in the legislature, sort of a kind of a pilot project. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, I would say the mayor and council um, in Springfield has certainly recognized uh, sort of the need, sort of the vulnerability of many of our parks in the city. Um, and a number of years ago, worked with the governor to create an Oregon Solutions project to sort of look at how are we, you know, how are we going to address a need if a park closes? And a park closure mm -hmm. is really dependent on that park owner's decision. It is not a decision by the city. And if an owner chooses to close a park, what impact is that going to have on those residents and what can we as a city do about it? And as we started looking at that process um, to sort of work with partners like St. Vinny's and others in the community to sort of work, you know, the question came is like, where are people going to go? Right. And people who have lived in community and sort of in these these homes that are acting like sort of ownership, where where can they go? And so it sort of started mulling on this idea of the need for a new park and a park that wasn't owned by an out-of-state developer, wasn't owned by a for-profit, but was owned by a local nonprofit with a goal of sort of ensuring longevity for a park. And right. so that's when we started talking with Terry um, and St. Vinny's and started looking at, are there funds at the state, you know, there are funds for preservation of mobile home parks. Well, again, we don't have control over preservation. That is a an action by the property owner. Mm -hmm. So trying to figure out, like, we couldn't really work under the state rules for accessing those funds, despite, I think, the intent being the same as how do we preserve the same number of units, the same number of you know mobile home park units mm -hmm. um, within our city. And so we started talking to OHCS and then started talking with Representative Livelys to say, could we do a pilot program in Springfield to create a new park? Um, sort of the intent of the OHCS funding was sort of using money for infrastructure development. Um, and that's exactly, you know, could that work in Springfield? And Representative Lively worked with Senator Beyer, worked with the governor's office, worked with um, Representative Marsh, and ultimately um, a bill got passed. And we have $3 million that have been allocated for a new manufactured home park in Springfield yeah. to be developed by a nonprofit developer. Um, and I would say our focus right now is looking for land because okay. that is, yeah. And Terry can speak to yeah, the and, other nuance. And OHCS is Oregon Housing mm. Community Services. It's a statewide agency that administers uh, the programs from the feds to communities, as well as the state funds that are going into affordable housing. So things like the GHAP program. So yes, uh, St. Louis City Paul has been develop or has been preserving mobile home parks uh, for about the last decade. Mm -hmm. And by preserving uh, many of the parks that we see uh, that are really old and have old housing stock in it uh, are very vulnerable to uh, uh, unscrupulous owners mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and often are places that are not desirable places to live. 
but people are forced to live there because they they can afford the rents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, a good example of that is the Saginaw Trailer Cart, uh, which is just north of Cottage Grove. Uh, that was a, um, uh, a not particularly appealing place to live. Had a lot of, um, of uh, violations associated with clean water discharge from sewer or from oh. the septic tank uh, and so forth. Uh, and, and some pretty dysfunctional human beings living there. Uh, and we bought that park a couple of years ago and uh, basically have turned it around. It's a nice place oh, to wow. live now. Okay. Well, the concept of preserving is one thing. The idea of developing is very attractive. Uh, and the idea of developing a park is attractive because as opposed to the LIHTC program, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit program, where it takes multiple years to figure out how to get the development going and that it generally costs a lot of money per unit. Mobile home parks can be developed in a much shorter timeline because you're not building a building, you're building infrastructure and you're asking the the manufacturing industry to manufacture a product for you. So, you know, at the Myrtlewood, you know, the cost per unit was well over $150,000 per unit uh, for those 35 units of housing out there. Uh, and as a result of that, and it took three years to get it up, uh, we can buy a similar sized unit uh, mobile home, and we do on a regular basis, uh, for about one third of that price, and it could be manufactured and landed on our site within a couple of months. Mm. So the, uh, it's very attractive to find a way to expand that housing stock, yeah. which is desirable because people actually want to live there because they yeah. already live in many parks around the area. So what we're looking at is finding a template where we can develop this type of housing on a repetitive basis, and Springfield has been a willing partner in that process, as Aaron described. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I I know that um, there are, uh, you know, you kind of alluded to some of the mobile home parks that are closing. I know that with the development of the um, the Glenwood area. I would say they're not closing. We're not closing, but... They might be at risk for closing in the future, right? So um, can you identify some in the area that are kind of, you know... I mean, I think there are a number when we look at um, sort of zoning, what mm-hmm. zone is a park on, and if it is not, it is no longer zoned for residential, but mm-hmm. is in maybe a, perhaps um, a commercial zone, then mm-hmm. you can kind of see like once a, an area changes, sort of like Glenwood, Glenwood I think, I was gonna say, is yeah. exactly mm-hmm. sort of where this initial um, sort of interest started mm-hmm. generating is to say. And is that, um, is the patrician a similar situation? Or? I would say the patrician is slightly different um, in that it was guided more by the property owner wanting to uh-huh. redevelop um, the land sort of then their request that the land be rezoned but again it's it is that property owner so in that case that isn't a situation where the property owner is interested in selling and terry Mm -hmm. can preserve it the property owner is interested in holding on to that land and so it's it's not an instance where we could sort of look into the preservation model and so that's where knowing that from the city's perspective Preservation isn't always in our control, so how do we sort of look toward developing new and beyond uh, new parks? And I would say even beyond any park that could potentially close, as Terry's mentioned, it, it seems to be a very sort of quick turnaround for developing just new affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and is is there a way we can do that? 
Well, there has to be. There has to be. Uh, you know, the problem, as you've alluded to, uh, is that uh, yeah, if we don't come up with some creative solutions and multi-dimensional approaches to adding uh, housing stock out there, mm -hmm. uh, we will just simply be adding more to the emergency needs of our right. community rather than long-term solutions. Uh, so this is not the sole uh, arrow in the quiver. This right. is one of a of stock. So. Are we going to develop more low-income housing tax credit deals in Springfield? Yes, that will happen. Mm -hmm. uh, are we going to be looking at gap funds and, uh, and lift funds and all of the rats from the state uh, to come up with more affordable housing? Yes, as opportunities present mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, but the development and the idea of developing an affordable uh, mobile home park is an interesting new twist to this tale. And it also you know, speaks to the unfortunate thing that happens sometimes is, is that you know, some parks have lost so much infrastructure and, and are not really safe places for people to live. Mm -hmm. uh, and it be, really becomes incumbent upon the city uh, to deal with that kind of an issue. And so that occasionally happens both here and elsewhere around the state. Yeah. Um, I... I, I love that this I, that this is getting so much attention. I think that uh, there's a lot of energy around. I mean, there, there were certainly a lot of people showing up to city council about the patrician specifically, and and I, you know, well, and I love that we're addressing the idea of not only building more but also addressing the issue of losing stock, um, which is certainly something that is going to exacerbate the problem. Um, you know, not looking for the the silver arrow or the silver bullet or anything, but what can what can people do with that energy that would you know help sort of move these things along or help? I mean, I, you know, I think that um, a lot of people are very frustrated about the patricians specifically that they showed up and they made their voices heard, but at the end of the day, it, it wasn't you know it's it's up to the owner and 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 that kind of thing. So what so where can people kind of direct their efforts or, or provide support to kind of help with uh, this kind of thing if you know. Put you on the spot a little bit. <laughs> well, uh, to begin with, uh, they can do things to help the emergency needs that we have. If we have to throw a lot of public funds at emergency needs, mm -hmm. uh, that takes away the fund of money that we can use to implement things like the TAC report. Right. Uh, and so that's the technical assistance corporation we do it's collaborative yeah collaborative. we did we actually yeah. did an episode on it so yeah so, so i mean should you know, be somewhat familiar <laughs> yeah so i mean you know the problem on, on all of this is is that you've got an existing needs that have to be addressed i mean we're now moving toward winter and the first egan activation will be a couple of days from now right. i think it's tomorrow actually. Tomorrow, yeah. uh and uh, and at the same time we want to save resources to develop affordable housing so one way that people can actively help on this issue is to volunteer for programs like the Egan Warming Centers uh, uh, or perhaps other programs that come up uh, to volunteer for Catholic Community Services in Springfield, uh, which mm -hmm. has a center over there for, for homeless individuals to plug in, uh, or in Eugene, you know, through our programs. Uh, so that's one clear way that you can do it. Uh, the next thing is, is that uh, obviously we need to deal with middle-term solutions. So middle-term solutions meaning well, all right, this is one winter, but then we've got another one, so we need to be planning. Uh, we right. need to be planning on how we're going to deal for the unhoused populations to deal with them most compassionately, but at the same time, find ways to move them into housing. So right. out of the, out of the uh, Dust to Dawn program over the last 10 months, uh, we've rehoused about 60 individuals. Well, that's cooperation with the landlord and uh, and the realty industry in this area is saying if we can help move people along, 
we need those willing landlords to work with. Same way with Section 8. Mm -hmm. uh, Section 8 mm -hmm. uh, is the program uh, through uh, Homes for Good uh, that uh, allows for people to pay only 30% of their just gross income, and then the state basically, or the feds, basically pick up the balance. Right. Well, you have to be willing to, to rent those to folks in that, own, that have Section 8 permits, and that's getting harder to find. So having a willing partner in the realty community and the community as a whole is really very important for us. And likewise, you know, it's a, also important for us to try and look ahead much further, and that is that we need local funding sources to pay for the development of affordable housing, not just in one tier, but in multiple tiers. And so one of the things that we were developing on Martin Luther King uh, in, in Eugene on the Caserva campus uh, is the first program enriched housing uh, for people that are homeless and have multiple barriers to housing, uh, uh, which is the heavy use population that's yeah. on the street. Uh, so finding ways to develop that type of program and working with the health, uh, you know, the, the health agencies in the community, mm -hmm. Peace Health, Trillium, and others, yeah. uh, to find a way to get more services for those folks. Uh, and, you know, to trying to take a look at how we can con control and curb the constant run-up of rents. Uh, and I think the state addressed some of that. But, uh, you know, it's not just one place. Uh, the last place I would say is try and make sure that you are not work, that you're working on trying to control the generational hand down of homelessness. So we know that the Springfield School District, the Eugene School Districts, have a fair number of homeless youth. Mm -hmm. Finding a way to make sure that those homeless youth stay housed and find housing, uh, and find you know either employment or access to services that they can stay in school so that they can break the cycle of poverty and homelessness uh, is an important tool. Yeah. Well, now, I, that's my opinion. Now, you've got yours. <laughs> no, I, um, I think the partners that Terry mentioned, like partnering, because I, I don't, I mean, the city, the city receives funding and has one source of funding that it receives from the government, but the city is not in the in the practice of financing and developing housing. Right. It's figuring out how to work with its partners. And one partner, yes, is Terry and St. Vinny's, but who are those other non-developer, non-government partners like the healthcare industry um, that are recognizing, you know, it's better for all of us if we are able to build more housing. It's better for this community if we can invest in this type of, um, sort of housing um, housing is health and so where do we go from there and so what can our for-profit partners what can our businesses locally knowing that they need employees that can afford sort of rent in town and if we don't have that housing that's available to them like where are folks are folks going to move out of the area and so what do we do as a community to sort of put our heads together to identify um, yes, let's leverage the federal funds and the experience and other sources that are out there, but what haven't we thought of? Um, so I think that's definitely where I'd like things to go. Good. Well, you heard it here. Reach out to your local nonprofits, especially St. Vincent de Paul. They've got a lot of excellent programs that I'm sure need lots of volunteers. And, uh, and uh, yeah, with, with that, I think we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap it on up. Thank you so much for joining me, both of you. I really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Daniel.